0: Good to be together again this morning, and if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 9. I'm thankful to God as you get turned there, I'm thankful to God for our church's firm commitment to the value of all human life. Our church believes this. We have a statement on the value of human life. I think uh, Abby's going to put it up on the screen there. We believe that all human life is sacred and created by God and in His image. Human life is of inestimable worth in all of its dimensions, including preborn babies, the aged, the physically or mentally challenged, every other stage or condition from conception through natural death. We are therefore called to defend, protect, and value all human life. And we're at a time in our nation again where abortion has taken kind of center stage, and it, there's a lot more conversation happening about that. And that gives us an opportunity. As believers, to engage in conversation, and the question for us is: How do we engage in those conversations in a like winsome, intelligent, thoughtful, convincing, loving way? Uh, that's hard to figure out. Uh, one person that I think has done an incredible job of helping lots and lots of people through his speaking and his writing figure that out is a guy named Scott Klusendorf. He's the founder and president of an organization called Pro-Life Training. Uh, And I get to be on the the board of the Lighthouse Center of Hope here in town. And uh, we had planned to have Scott come uh, in March of 2020. Uh, And then something happened, I can't remember what. Uh, But he was unable to come. And now like two and a half years later, Uh, he is going to be here. And so he's going to be here in Iowa Falls the first weekend of November. And so inside your bulletin are the specific times and locations and that kind of thing. Uh, And so it's okay to get out your phone now. If you use the calendar in your phone, make sure you get that in there because it's it's going to be one of those things where if you don't, then you're going to hear other people talking about it and say, oh, I should have been there. Um, so, I encourage you uh, to to make that even if you 're like man i 'm not sure i 'm ready to be like trained to engage with other people i 'm still wrestling through what I think. Uh, Come and be there for that. Um, I'm just really grateful that he gets to be here uh, and hope that you're there when he is. So uh, that is there. And life really is, isn't it? Life is a beautiful thing. I remember, I think I've mentioned this before, when I was a new believer, one of my favorite classes, even though my major for my first couple years of college was elementary education, but I went to a, a liberal arts college, so I had to take all sorts of different courses. So I'm a new believer, and I took this course called Human Anatomy and Physiology, And it was one of the most fascinating classes uh, that I've ever taken. And ever since then, probably before then too, I just don't remember it, just been fascinated with how God designed our bodies. And there's many things that are necessary for us to live. And towards the top of that list is blood. Now, I acknowledge even just saying the word blood, some of you are more like me, you don't have much of a problem with blood. Maybe you work in the medical field, you're a first responder, you've just become accustomed to it. Maybe, maybe you regularly give blood at a blood bank, and so you've gotten used to that. Maybe you've had some sort of condition that's required you to take blood, uh, and so you've just kind of gotten used to it over time, it doesn't bother you all that much. But other people are just like, they, they struggle. Some of you, you struggle, like it seems almost repulsive to you, and you try to avoid it because... It's like, oh, I might pass out if I see too much of that, right? So you're even uncomfortable with me talking about it right now. But regardless of whether blood nauseates or fascinates you, the reality is we cannot have life without blood. And today, as we continue in the book of Hebrews, we look at part two of three of an argument that Jesus, the new covenant priest, is the mediator of the new and better covenant. And if you remember from reading the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant in particular, has a lot of blood in it. And maybe you've struggled as you've read through parts of the Old Testament to imagine, or maybe you've tried not to imagine, how much blood was spilled or sprinkled and sometimes even thrown. And so, maybe rightly, you struggle with that a bit. And as the author of Hebrews writes to convince to his audience that Jesus is better, he doesn't shy away from talking about not only the blood necessary in the Old Covenant, but the blood that's necessary for life in the New Covenant as well. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to hear a lot about the blood. We're going to see that it is through the blood of Christ that we have eternal hope. We're going to go through all of chapter 9 today. It's, it's longer. It's 28 verses. I don't think the message is going to be extraordinarily long. Uh, but part of that is because I think what I'm going to do here right now, I know what I'm going to do, is I'm just going to read the last verses of chapter 9. We will go through every verse, and I will read all of them as I walk through the sermon. But for now, as you stand if you're able, uh, we're just going to read Hebrews 9:23 to 28, and then we'll go back to the beginning after that. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I'm looking out at a group of people that you know. You know intimately. You, you love them. You love them enough that you sent your son to die for them. And so, so I know them in part. I love them in part. But God, I thank you that your love for them is so much deeper. And we see that because of who Christ is and what he has done. So open our eyes up to that here on this morning for your glory. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll read verses 23 to 28. This is God's Word, and it says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen. You can be seated. So I already mentioned this is part two of a three-part argument about the better covenant. Jesus, the better priest, mediator of the better covenant. Last week we saw, it was already clear, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had a couple of problems. One, it was provisional. God never intended it for, to, for it to be the once-for-all covenant. It was provisional. It was set for a certain amount of time. The other problem was it, with it was the people in the covenant failed to keep the commitments of the covenant. So we saw that last week. And what we see now when we turn to chapter 9, especially in the first 10 verses, is more limitations of the old covenant. Okay, more limitations of the Old Covenant. So, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 10, and I want you to be listening for the limitations of the Old Covenant. If he's going to try to convince them not to go back to the Old Covenant, but to stick with the New because the New is better, he's got to point out the things that are wrong with the Old Covenant. So, listen for the limitations of the Old Covenant that we read here in verses 1 through 10. So Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 says this, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So in that section, we don't really hear much about the New Covenant. We're just hearing about the Old Covenant, some reminders of things they would have known in great detail. That's why he starts getting into detail in verses 1 to 5 about you know every piece of furniture in the tabernacle or the temple. And he's just like, we don't have time uh, to get into that. Most of them would have already been very familiar with it anyway. And so then he moves on. But we see a couple of limitations that he seems to highlight in these first 10 verses. One, I think, is this. That an earthly place of holiness was inaccessible to most people. You know what inaccessible means, right? It means you can't go there. Most people could not go to these holy places. Worship in the Mosaic Covenant was centered around one location. Did all Jewish people live in Jerusalem? No, right? But there was one location where there was a temple. It was just Jerusalem. And even within that temple, there were locations and places where only certain people could go especially the most holy place where only one person, the high priest, could go and only once a year. So an earthly place of holiness was inaccessible to most. To enter into God's presence, that wasn't even a possibility for many people. That was a problem. So according to verse 8, we just read this, verse 8 says this, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. If there's continued just sacrifices and that kind of stuff, and that's the way that people enter the presence of God, then it's closed off to most people. It's inaccessible to most people. And the second limitation that we see highlighted in these first ten verses is this. Priestly rituals could not purify. Priestly rituals could not bring about ultimate purification. Priests would regularly perform ritual duties, including making gifts and sacrifices on behalf of all God's people. Do you see that in verse 7? Verse 7 said, But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, that's all referring to one day. It's called the Day of Atonement, or do you know what the Hebrew word for that is? If you use your phone calendar, which I do to keep track of life, you may have seen that this very week on this past Wednesday was a Jewish holiday. So my phone tells me all the holidays. This past week you may have seen on your phone the holiday Yom Kippur. That's a -a once-a-year holiday in the Jewish faith. It's called by many to be the most the most holy and somber of Jewish holidays. And it's a day laid out in detail in Leviticus chapter 16. So way back when when Israel is wandering, just released from slavery in Egypt, wandering through the wilderness, God gives the the covenant to Moses... And Moses gets this instruction. Leviticus chapter 16 writes it down for the people. There is to be annually a day of atonement. Described in much more detail than we see here. Again, because the people are Jews. They already know what happened. So he doesn't need to describe it to us. And we we don't have time to read all of Leviticus 16. You could go back and do that. Here's a summary of what happens on the day of atonement every year, which was just celebrated or recognized by the Jewish faith just this past week on Wednesday. What happens that one time every year is that the high priest first makes a sacrifice of a bull to cover his own sin, and then takes two goats. One goat taking that goat and sacrificing it as a sin offering before the Lord, and then a second goat on which he lays his hands, This goat is still alive. He lays his hand on the goat, confesses the sins of Israel, and as though he's putting those sins on that goat, and then that goat is sent out, as a scapegoat, uh, out of the temple and into the wilderness. And so if you read in detail what's happening on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur in Leviticus chapter 16, there's that part that's not bloody, but everything else about it is very, very bloody. But these priestly rituals couldn't purify. Now, interestingly, let me just kind of give you an interesting note. At the time that the book of Hebrews is written, it's like the mid-60s. Okay, So you, you, you picture Jesus crucified, risen from the dead in the mid-30s. Now it's 30 years later, it's the mid-60s. The temple still existed. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, still honored in this way by the Jewish people as it had been for centuries. Well, with some breaks in there. Right? But just a couple of years later, in the year 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed. And so while Yom Kippur is still, now centuries later, still on the Jewish calendar as a holiday, they cannot do everything that's prescribed to them in Leviticus 16. Right? So it's a day where there's prayer and, and repentance and those kinds of things, but these sacrifices laid out here in Leviticus chapter 16 and referred to in Hebrews chapter 9 are things that can't be done. Right? This is in part because an earthly temple was central to the old covenant, and there's not one. So even in this, we still see, even though he was trying to convince them of the limitations in their day, it's even more limited in our day, the limitations of the Old Covenant. An earthly place of holiness is inaccessible to most, and priestly rituals, in the end, cannot purify. But in the Old Testament, it's clear that sin is deadly, and there's going to be blood. If there's going to be atonement and right relationship with God, there needs to be a price that's paid, and that price is blood, life. Sin is deadly. It takes life. But what we come to understand when we get to the New Testament is better blood is needed. Better blood is needed. And that's what we see laid out in verses 11 to 22. So that's the next section here. Verses 11 to 22, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's split this part into two sections. And so looking first at 11 through 14, here's what I think we see in 11 to 14. Eternal redemption and purification come by the blood of Jesus. Eternal redemption and purification come by the blood of Jesus. Let's look at verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So again, Old Testament had all sorts of shadows. There was this tent, but Jesus has entered into a better tent, the heavenly dwelling place of God. There was blood, but it was blood of bulls and goats and calves. But the New Testament points us to the greater reality, Jesus entering the heavenly holy places and not doing it with the blood of animal sacrifices, but doing it with his own blood. And that secures for us, verse 12 says, an eternal redemption. That's why we don't keep coming back to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. In Christ, we have eternal redemption. We are born slaves to sin, and we need to be redeemed. And that redemption, that eternal redemption that we need, being set free forever from our bondage to sin, doesn't come when we sacrifice goats and bulls, but it comes when we trust in Jesus and His blood. That's why we're saying nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then we also received purification. We saw that in verses 13 and 14. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, offers Himself so that our sin is washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Again, we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So the blood of Jesus being highlighted as better blood here in verses 11 to 14. It offers us eternal redemption and purification. And then verses 15 to 22. In verses 15 to 22, we're going to see eternal inheritance and forgiveness coming by the blood and death of Jesus. Look at verses 15 to 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So, think about this. He's going to talk about this in more detail, but think about an inheritance. When do you get an inheritance? Let's keep going. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves. Now, picture this, if you're not too repulsed by it. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. So we imagine all these beautiful, ornamental, gold-covered things that God had them make, and those things are covered regularly with blood, sprinkled and thrown, and even on the people themselves. Verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So there was no way I don't think that you could have walked through seeing all of these things required by the Old Covenant and not come to the conclusion that sin is deadly, that the wages of sin is death, that death costs, that that sin costs life. Remember, this audience who grew up Jewish would know this because of the sacrificial system that God put in place was a picture, was a copy, was a shadow of the reality showing that sin is deadly and requires a sacrifice. But now he's telling them: you who have been called by God, if you're saved, you have received the promised eternal inheritance. And again, you get an inheritance when after death occurs. Christ died. His blood was shed in order that we would receive an eternal inheritance. Something that's ours forever. What is it? I think it's forgiveness of sins is at the center of it. It says there at the end of verse 22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin costs life. So, application point because again, like I said last week, the challenge with walking through this is he's trying to convince people and it makes sense. He's trying to convince people who had lived most of their lives or a part of their lives under the old Mosaic covenant and have now been saved and are trusting in Jesus but are wondering about going back. Not many of us or any of us probably have been raised under that covenant. So like, like I said last week, it's like I'm trying to convince you of something that you don't really need to be all that convinced of. Right? But, but I don't want to just like, well, you don't need to be convinced. Let's just skip three chapters of Hebrews and get on to chapter 11, which is really good. Right? I don't want to do that. So so why, how does this apply to us? Let, let me just point this out. I started the sermon out by acknowledging that some of us are repulsed by blood and therefore avoid it. But if you step back and think about it, think about so, so take note, every song we sang today, and maybe you don't even notice it because maybe you've been a part of the church for quite some time, you've been a Christian for quite some time. We just sang, and every song we've sung so far today has talked about blood. Think about that as an outsider coming in. Last week we took communion, had a cup, and it had grape juice. We don't use some other kind of juice. We use uh, fruit of the vine in part because it looks like blood. And right before we drink it, I say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Think about this from an outsider's perspective. Coming in, and th- they already think we're weird. Now, we, we can't stop singing about blood, and then we take a little cup, and we say something about blood, and then we drink it. That sounds strange to somebody that's an outsider. We sing about it a lot. We take communion. By the way, the, the first words of the closing song we're going to sing today, there is a fountain filled with blood. Right? Why should we keep the, like? Should we just like soften this? Like, hey, let's just do away with all the blood stuff. Let's not sing about blood anymore. Do we have to talk about blood when we take it? Like, should we, why do we need to do that? Why do we got to sing about it? Well, I think it's because we know that it's only through the blood of Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins. It's only through the blood of Jesus that we have eternal redemption. We're not people who religiously find a priest to come and do some rituals and that kind of thing for us in order that we might be made right with God. We come together to remember and to sing about and to sing to and about the one who has accomplished that for us in full. Our eternal redemption paid for in full by Jesus shedding his blood on the cross. And so we sing, No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. It's not like, well, I think I am until next year when i got to go do that thing again. No, I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. We sing that on purpose. We sing, now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. We sing, I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. Only through the blood of Jesus do we have eternal hope. So as, as strange as that may sound, this gives us an opportunity like it would have for a Jewish person in the first century watching these sacrifices take place, participating in them. It gives us an opportunity. Somebody questions, why do you guys sing about blood all the time? For us to help them see the cost of sin is life. Sin is deadly. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal redemption through the blood of Christ. His sacrifice for us. And then we just have a few verses left. Verses 23 to 28, which I already read at the beginning. And what stuck out to me as I was studying these final verses of chapter 9 was just seeing the repetition of the word once. It shows up in all three sections of this last bit of chapter 9. Once. Verses 23 to 26. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. Do you see that there in verses 23 to 26? I know it's there because I saw it. Oh, there we go. Okay, verse 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus came once to be sacrificed once for all. Not a repeated sacrifice that needs to be done week in and week out. Verse 27. Here's where we see once again. Look at verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's pretty blunt, right? The author of Hebrews is just talking to this audience. Listen, you're going to die, and after that comes judgment. There's not, here's second chance time in between death and judgment. right? There is death, and then there is judgment pretty blunt about that. Then verse 28, we're going to hear once again. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So people that had come out of a religious faith with repeated sacrifices are hearing this good news that Jesus died once to bear the sins of many. And He will come again, but He's not coming to die again. There's no further sacrifice needed. No, He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So again, is there application for us in this? I think so. I want to focus the application on these last verses. And just ask you, because the author of Hebrews is really blunt, so I'm going to be really blunt. Are you ready to die and face judgment? Are you ready to die and face judgment? We've got a room filled with all different kinds of people. Some of you are young. Some of you are old. Right? Some of you are healthy. And some of you are really frail. But two things we all have in common are this. 100% of us have not died yet. And 100% of us, unless Jesus returns first, will die. Young Old, healthy, frail, the reality is we just don't know. It could be from cancer. It could be from a disease. It could be from a heart attack. It could be from an accident. It might happen 40 years from now. It might happen four hours from now. We, we just don't know. And As I'm studying this this week, I just keep getting these phone calls and making phone calls of people that are struggling. Just think about this. I mean, I just mentioned it earlier. Two weeks ago, Irv and Donna both sitting here on a Sunday morning. By last Sunday, Irv is in the hospital and Donna is well, taking care of everything at home on a Sunday. A day later, Donna is sick, dealing with a fall, bleed on her brain, taken to a hospital in Des Moines. And now Irv comes back home. On Tuesday, Randy Harkop was at men's Bible study. We're reading the Bible together up until 1 o'clock Randy takes off on his moped a couple hours later. He's at home in his chair having a seizure and ends up in the hospital. What if that happened a couple hours earlier while he's driving his moped on the highway? Which you probably shouldn't do. Uh, right? I mean, just, just think of all of these things. Wednesday morning, I'm meeting with Ron Allen in my office. He would end up spending that night and every night since then in a hospital. And th- 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 we just don't know. I mean, in all these cases, God spared and protected life. Praise God for that. We just, it's just a reminder, though, that nobody was planning on that. You know, like like I didn't get done meeting with Ron on Wednesday morning. He's like, "Well, hey, have a, night, a nice night in the hospital." Right? We didn't get done with Bible study and say to Andy, "Well, have a good seizure this afternoon." Right? We just don't know those things are coming. And the reality is. We're a lot more vulnerable and frail than any of us think we are. We don't know when our time will be. And so that's why I think it's pretty uh, okay, maybe even good, to just ask the blunt question. Are you ready to die and face judgment? If you've hesitated to turn from sin and trust in Jesus, don't hesitate any longer. After you die, you'll face judgment. There's not this like second chance gap in the middle that you have. Christ came and died once to bear the sins of many. The many are those who by God's grace are born again and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Is that you? Do you have assurance that when I die, when that day comes, I know that when I face judgment, I will be with him forever? If not, then let's talk. I don't know that why, why you would wait longer. So I'm going to be up here after the worship service. Let's talk. If you have loved ones who have not yet turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, let them know you're concerned about what happens when they die and face judgment. You can be blunt with them. For those of us who are ready, did you notice this last part of verse 28? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Right? The passage, thankfully, doesn't end with, you're going to die. It ends with, Jesus is coming again. He came once to deal with sin. The second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is what our world needs. Not better results on a 2022 election. This is what our frail bodies need. Not necessarily another pill or another surgery. None of those things are going to fix us for good. If we want to be fixed for good, we need Jesus to return. Let me close with this. I was reading a book recently, and the author commented, uh, he's a dad, and dads have moments like this with our kids. He was a dad of, at that time, a three-year-old daughter. And they were praying before bed. And he talked about how tears welled up in his eyes when he listened to his three-year-old pray this simple prayer one night. Dear Jesus, come back really soon, because we have lots of owies, and it really hurts. We look at the world around us and we look at the people we love. We look at ourselves and we who live with eternal hope because Jesus shed his blood for us can pray that prayer. Let's pray. God, we we do long for Jesus to come again. Would you help us to more eagerly wait for that day? Do you help us to be ready to die and face judgment? Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son to die once to bear our sins. And I pray that you would help our hearts to overflow with thankfulness, even as we sing again about His blood and all that has been accomplished for us in Christ in his name we pray amen if you are able please stand and we're going to sing again it's